As you can see, we are back in Luke this morning. Jesus is partway through his earthly ministry. He is on what is sometimes called the journey to Jerusalem. We get that title from verse 22. You see that Jesus is approaching, he's traveling towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the holy city for the Jews in Jesus' day, and so Jesus is on this slow tour, making lots of different stops on his way to Jerusalem, where he knows that he will be betrayed and where he will ultimately surrender his life. And while on the way, he gives some of his most direct and divisive teaching. For example, while on the road to Jerusalem, Jesus says things like this from Luke 12, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. That's hard teaching. That's somewhat divisive teaching, we could say. In this journey towards Jerusalem, Jesus also calls out the Jews of his day for their hypocrisy. He tells them in chapter 12, verse 56, that they're so good at knowing how to look at the sky and interpret the signs of the weather that is to come, and yet they fail to even look around and to hear Jesus' teaching and to see Jesus and to recognize that the Messiah is standing right in front of them. They fail at interpreting the times. Somewhat hard and somewhat divisive teaching. And then in chapter 13, Jesus is told about an atrocity committed by Pilate, the the ruler of the region. Apparently, Pilate killed some Galileans even as they were sacrificing to the Lord. And Jesus responds, not maybe how we would expect Jesus to respond, but Jesus responds that unless they too repented, they would all likewise perish. That is hard and divisive teaching. And this is not the passive, soft Jesus that is sometimes presented for us. The, maybe the veggie tale Jesus or the Jesus that's given to us in commercials like the He Gets Us commercials. The Jesus that loves everyone, that never judges, that never divides, that never challenges that always accepts, always embraces, always endorses whatever you are, whoever you are, whatever you want, Jesus is for you. And yet here on this journey towards Jerusalem, we have Jesus declaring important truths even though they are hard to hear. They were hard to hear for Jesus' first audience. They're hard to hear for us today. And yet in the goodness of And in the grace of God, he reveals to us the things that we need to know, whether or not they're fun to hear. And this text this morning is no different. In fact, this particular text this morning begins with a question from the crowd. Look at verse 22. Jesus went on his way through the towns and the villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few. Right away, we can see that this is a question about eternity. 
It's a question about who, in the end, will be saved. Will it be lots of people? Will it be the vast majority of people? Will it be everyone? Or will it only be a few people? Will it be a smaller group of people? Will it be the minority that's actually saved and not the majority? Now, this is a really important question. It's probably not a question that we think about often amid our our fall activities and and maybe making plans for Thanksgiving and all of the things coming up, but this is a really important question for us to stop this morning and consider. In the end, will lots of people be saved? In the end, will most people be saved? In the end, will all people be saved? Or... In the end, will only some be saved? Will it only be a smaller group when compared to all humanity? Now, if we were here and this were 11 years ago, this were the year 2011, we would be probably now talking about a book that was a bestseller in 2011, a book by a man named Rob Bell who wrote a book called Love Wins. Maybe you've heard of Rob Bell before. Before he left the Christian faith, Rob Bell was a pastor of one of the largest churches in North America and had at one time been considered somewhat orthodox. And yet the book Love Wins was really a a turning point for Rob and for those who followed Rob. In the book Love Wins, he essentially sought to answer this very same question. In the end, will those who are saved be many, or will those who are saved be few? And in typical Rob Bell fashion, if you're familiar with him at all, he, he, he really ever gives answers or definitives or certainties or, or truth. He just likes to ask lots of questions. He likes to deconstruct without ever reconstructing. For 224 pages, he argues that in the end, God may just possibly, probably, most likely, save everyone. That in the end, love wins, and God is a God of love more than anything else, Rob says. And therefore, everyone in the end, it seems, will go to heaven. But tragically for Rob Bell, we should still pray for Rob Bell, and tragically for those he has influenced, Jesus here says the very opposite. Notice Jesus' answer to this question. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, verse 24, strive to enter the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive to enter the narrow door. What does that mean? You might remember that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he says something similar. Look at Matthew 7, verse 13. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So there are two gates 
There are two roads. There is a wide road and a wide gate. The wideness means that it's a popular road. It's a well-traveled road. Think of I-75. It's a road used by lots and lots of people. It's a smooth, generally, (laughs) road, right? It's it's a pretty straight road, right? There's no 90-degree turns. It's an easy road. But there's a problem, and Jesus said it is a road that leads to destruction, And at the same time, there is a narrow road. Think of some of the roads. I went to college in rural Kentucky. And coming from Michigan, where most of the roads are just pretty straight and flat, uh, in rural Kentucky, the roads are sometimes no wider than your car. And you're kind of making these little turns and you're like winding around. Is this a road? Is this not a road? Is this just like a, a cattle path? I'm not sure what this is. Think of that kind of road. It's, it's a narrow road, and it's not well-worn because it's not well-traveled, Jesus says. Those who find it are few. Those who travel by it are few. And it's a rough road. There are rocks. Sometimes you have to stop, and you have to move trees out of the way. Sometimes there are obstacles that you have to go over. It has difficulties. But, Jesus said, it is a road and a gate which leads to life. And if you think about it, we see the truthfulness of this all around us, don't we? I mean, most of the world wants nothing to do with Jesus, tragically. Most people throughout human history have not been Christ followers, tragically. But there is a group. There's a small group, a faithful group of men and women, young and old, throughout human history who are on the narrow road, even through the difficulties, even through the trials, even though it is sometimes lonely. And this is the group, Jesus says, that receives eternal life. So this then helps us to understand Jesus' words Here in Luke chapter 13, the narrow door is like the narrow road and the narrow gate. It's not the most popular road. It's not the most well-used road. But it is, truthfully, the only road that leads to life. Remember, Jesus is answering the question, will those who are saved be many or few? And the answer seems to be few. When compared to the billions of people who have ever lived, those who will be saved will be few, will only be a small percentage. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, but wait, I thought God was a God of love. Why would God only save some? That's a really good question. It's a really important question. But it's a question that defies our inbuilt logic. Because we tend to think if God is good and if salvation is all the work of God's grace, then why doesn't a good God just choose to gracefully save everyone, right? I mean, that's the way we think. And if you think that way, and I think that way, we're simply thinking as logical human beings from our vantage point. We need to remember that God doesn't work from our vantage point. This is a major sticking point 
for lots of us. Like, how could a good God allow so many to go to hell? In fact, does the fact that he doesn't save everyone somehow make God less worthy of our worship? Like, less worthy to be God because he does not save everyone. And to answer those kinds of questions, we need to be shaped. We need to be transformed in our minds. We need to not think the way we naturally think from the womb with our own ideas of justice and from our own kind of egocentric way of thinking of things with us at the center of the world. And we need to have our minds conformed and shaped by Scripture to think the way Scripture teaches us about such things. That's the only way to answer this question that honors God and brings glory to Christ. The reality is, and the Bible is clear on this, that all humans, all of us have sinned against God. And sin is treason. Sin is not the the kinds of things that maybe our toddler does that we say no and then they do it anyway and we think it's really cute and we say no, but we're trying to hold back a smile or a grin and we kind of look at the other adults in the room and we're thinking to ourselves, they really shouldn't have, but really they're so cute, aren't they? But the Bible doesn't teach us that sin is like that. It teaches us that sin is treason. It's high treason against the most high God. It's rebellion against the creator who made us. It is a failure, according to Romans 1, to honor God as God. And it is an honoring of something or someone else in the place of God. And so, because of our treason, because of our rebellion, because of our sin, all humans justly and rightly, those are two important words, justly and rightly deserve an eternity apart from God. It is not unjust or not right for God to allow everyone to go to hell. That's justice. Because the wages of our treason is death. The wages of our sin is hell, as Romans 6.23 makes crystal clear. That's the baseline from which we need to think about this kind of question. The fact that no one deserves salvation. We all rightly, through our own sin, deserve an eternity apart from God. And it's in the midst of this then that God graciously steps in and chooses to save a people for his own glory. We don't know why God chooses as he does because we are all undeserving. And the Bible doesn't answer the question. It doesn't tell us why God chooses to save this person. But our salvation is derived 100% from God's gracious choice. Listen to how the word of God communicates this to us in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, so we're dead, even when we're dead, God makes us alive 
in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. And God raises us up with him, with Christ, and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this salvation, this faith, is not your own doing. You weren't saved by your faith. We are saved by Christ through faith, but we're not saved by our faith. One day when we stand before the Lord, we can't say, well, you know what? It's my faith that saved. No. It's only Jesus who saves. The word of God says this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is not the result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. So that our only answer for the saving grace of God in our lives is God's grace. God's gracious love towards me that he would choose to save me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a rebel, a treasonous sinner like me. So we can say that everyone deserves hell. No one goes to hell who doesn't deserve it because we all deserve it, which then helps us to frame the question of God only saving some. So rather than thinking, why wouldn't God save everyone? The better question is, why does God save anyone at all? Like to ask, why wouldn't God save everyone, assumes that everyone deserves to be saved, right? It just it's kind of built into that question. Like, well, of course we all deserve to be saved. I mean, we're not as bad as we could be. But as you can see, no one deserves to be saved. So why does God save anyone at all? And we could extend that out. We could say, and in his gracious saving of some, why doesn't he just extend that saving work to everyone? And to answer that question then, why doesn't then God just extend his saving work to everyone? To answer that question is to speculate beyond what our limited human minds can understand. I mean, even the most brilliant human minds who have ever lived are nothing but a vapor compared to the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Our ways are not God's ways. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are above our ways. God does not tell us the specific answer to the question, why doesn't he extend his saving grace to every single person? Except to tell us that God chooses to save some as a demonstration of his glory. God's glory is somehow seen in the gracious, undeserved saving of some. The Holy Spirit leads the Apostle Paul to write this in Romans chapter 9. When speculating about this very same question, the Holy Spirit leads Paul to write, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Unless we charge God with unfairness or wrongdoing or not being worthy to be God because he doesn't operate the way we think he should operate. Will what is molded 
say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Right? Like even if in some strange dimension where instead of vegetables talking like on Veggie Tales, now it's, it's pottery talking, like you could never imagine a pot saying to the potter, well, why did you do this? Why did you make me like this? It's the potter. The potter has the right with the same lump of clay to make some things beautiful for noble purposes, Paul says, and other things for dishonorable uses. He goes on, what if God, verse 22, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So somehow in the mystery of God, he chooses to save a people for his own glory. And somehow in the wisdom of God and in ultimate reality that we're not privy to, God is more glorified in that than he would be in not saving anyone or than he would be in the saving of everyone. Again, this is a hard teaching because it goes counter everything that we think when we think of fair and right and and what the definition of goodness even is. Which is why I said we have to start at the baseline of what we all rightly deserve. Like we do not know why God chooses to save anyone at all other than to demonstrate his glory and his love. And to share with the gracious recipients of salvation, the glory and the joy of that salvation. God does not save some because he has to save some or because God is somehow lonely. I remember hearing as a kid one time in a Sunday school class, well, God is really lonely. He was really lonely, the triune God. That's why he created humans which kind of makes you feel warm and fuzzy and good for a moment. And you're like, well, wait a minute. If God is lonely, then God in the triune Godhead is somehow deficient in and of himself and therefore ceases to be God, right? So God did not create humans. He doesn't save because he has to, because he's lonely. It's not because God is guilty. God is perfect and holy and completely self-sufficient. And yet he chooses out of his love out of his holiness, out of his grace, out of all of the attributes of the triune God, he chooses to demonstrate his glory and his grace and his love by choosing and saving a people for himself. Again, I know this is not easy, and it does not always make sense to us, and if it made complete sense, then God would be no wiser than we are. And wouldn't you rather serve a God whose ways were higher than your own, whose intelligence was beyond our ability to reason all the time? But there's another question that this text gives us. The question is, what about those who want to enter but can't? Like, What about those who want to enter, those who seek to enter but are unable? Look at verse 24 again. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
So is this talking about people who want to be saved? They want to be made right with God. They want to enter the narrow door, but they can't. It's kind of like when you have, maybe I'm the only one who has these dreams, but it's like the second week of school, but you've missed the first two weeks because you just forgot that school was going to happen. And so all the other students know where to go and know what's expected and know when the quizzes are. And then you arrive and you can't find your locker and you can't find your class and you finally find your class, but the two papers are already due and it's the day of a pop quiz. And you're like, I've been looking for the door. I'm looking for my locker and I just can't find it. I don't, maybe I'm the only one who has that. You're all looking at me like, never had that thought. It's probably some sort of traumatic school experience. This is not that experience. This is not, well, we should ask, I guess, first, is this that kind of experience? Those who are trying to find this narrow door, they're seeking and they're looking and they're looking and they're looking and yet it's hidden from them and they just cannot find it. Is that what's being talked about here? I mean, that would be terrible. What if I want to be saved, but I can't? And this is where Jesus' explanation in verses 25 and following are really helpful. Look at verse 25. And when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside, that's important, you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and taught in your streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Notice, the door is closed. Then the people come and begin knocking to get inside. But the master of the house says, I don't know you. This is about timing. So the idea here is that there is a time when this door, this narrow door is open. But there also comes a time when the narrow door is closed. And once it's closed, it's closed for good. In fact, Jesus would say something similar in a parable in Matthew chapter 25 Jesus said, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So the groom is on his way, the bridegroom, and he is about to come and the party is about to get started. The the marriage supper is about to commence. And these ten virgins are waiting outside and five are prepared for the coming of the bridegroom, and five are not prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. 
And the unprepared ones then aren't ready when the bridegroom comes. They're not there. They're back trying to make preparations in that very moment. And Jesus said, by then it's too late. And the wise will enter with the bridegroom and the door will be shut. And once it's shut, it's closed, it's shut. Therefore, Jesus says, be ready, watch, be prepared, because you do not know the day or the hour of Christ's return. The message is clear, and it fits with what Jesus is saying in Luke 13. There is a time to come when the door of salvation will be shut, and it will not open again. Here in Luke 13, Jesus then is not saying, he's not saying, you know, there are some who will want to be saved and just can't. We know that because the Bible is clear that no one desires the Lord on our own. We don't desire the Lord without the Lord first causing us to desire him because we know the Bible is clear that apart from the work of the Lord to change our hearts, our natural disposition is to love the darkness and hate the light. There is no biblical category for those who honestly and genuinely want to be saved but aren't chosen or can't find the door. Let me say that again because sometimes sometimes Christians can wrestle with what what if I genuinely want to be saved and I really do, I want to be saved but what if I am not chosen? What if I can't find the door? Friend, The very fact that you desire genuinely to be made right with God, to have your sins forgiven, to be in right standing with the creator God, to have a personal relationship with him is evidence that God is at work in your heart. And there is no category for those who want to be saved but aren't chosen and can't find the door. Those whose hearts are changed will desire the door. And those who desire to save will find it. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What Jesus is talking about here in Luke 13, 24 is those who try to enter the door after the door has been shut. There is a time to come when Jesus will return. It may be before this service is even over. It may be 500 years from now. But once he comes, the door is shut. And at that time, although the Bible teaches us that every eye will see him and every ear will hear him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, it will be too late for those who failed to enter the narrow door before we die or before Jesus Christ returns. Like that's the whole parable of the bridegroom. The five foolish virgins here, oh, the bridegroom is here. Oh no, quick, we're not ready. Let's go get ready right now but it's too late. So this then, all of this, is a gracious warning from our good and gracious God. Brothers and sisters, Luke 13 is a gracious warning from the Lord for our preparedness. 
In fact, it fits with the things that Jesus has been saying up till now. Things like, be ready for the master to return in 1235 and following. Things like, settle with your accuser now before it's too late. In chapter 12, verse 57 and following. Things like, look at the signs and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Chapter 12, verse 54 and following. Things like, remember death and prepare by repenting now. In chapter 13, verses 1 and following. Or bear fruit now so as not to be uprooted. Chapter 13, verses 6 and following. Or recognize the Messiah now. Chapter 13, verses 10 and following. And now the Lord graciously warns us that there is a time coming when the narrow door of salvation will close and those who will be saved are few. So strive, Jesus says, to enter the narrow door. Our good and gracious God calls to us, warns us to strive to enter the narrow door. What what does the word strive mean? It means to give intensity to something, to strain towards something. In fact, it's the similar idea to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's the picture of Christian and Pilgrim's progress. I follow the narrow, winding, sometimes difficult road to the celestial city. I press on. I strive for that day. In fact, the same word that is used here in Luke 13 is used in 1 Timothy chapter 4, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. We toil and strive because our hope is set on the living God. We don't toil and strive so that we might hope in the living God. You get the idea. This is a striving or a straining not so that we might receive salvation. As we've already seen, by grace we are saved as a gift from God. This is a striving that marks those who are saved. Like striving, putting aside what is past and straining towards what is ahead in Christ Jesus is a mark of those who are being saved. We strive towards God. We strive towards the goal, which is Christ. We strive to put away the things from our old life and to put on Christ. We strive to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to walk in holiness. We strive to walk by the Spirit. We strive to enter the narrow door of salvation. You you get the idea. 
Again, Paul would use the same word when he wrote to Timothy telling him, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. He's just talked about a number of sins. And pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Pursue, fight, take hold of the eternal life to which you made the good confession. Brothers and sisters, this is the Christian life. This is what it looks like to walk the narrow, winding road and to enter through the narrow door. It looks like forgetting what is past, pressing on towards what is ahead, setting before us Christ. And here's the thing. Jesus says that we will be surprised by those who enter with us. Look at verse 28. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So when Jesus returns, there will be incredible grief for many when they realize that unlike Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they are not a part of the people of God. They never trusted in the Lord for salvation. And instead, Jesus says they will be cast out. The door will be shut with them on the outside. Like in the days of Noah, where the general population mocked him, They mocked his calls to turn to the salvation provided by the Lord. But on the day when the Lord closed the door of the ark, it was the Lord that closed the door, you remember? I have to think that there were many who banged on that door as rain fell for the very first time in history. But the Lord had already shut the door. The window of opportunity was closed. And Jesus says there will be weeping for those who have not entered the narrow door. But notice there will also be joyous surprise from those who have. We will be surprised by who else is there. Jesus says people from all nations, people from all directions will come and will gather at the table, will eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at the feast, in this presence of the Lord, even those whom this world despised, who were least and last and lost and lowly, will be there because of the saving work of God. And some who were considered in this life significant and powerful and authoritative and seem to have it all together will not be there. And so the the challenge for us this morning is really threefold. The first challenge is, will you be there? Have you entered by the narrow door? Are you trusting in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is Julia so well articulated for us this morning, came and lived without sin and died on the cross in the place of all who believe and was raised to life three days later, defeating sin and death. 
that all who trust in him, who all who believe in him, who confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead are saved. Are you trusting in that Jesus today as your only hope for salvation? The window, the door of opportunity, the narrow door is open right now. None of us have any idea when it will close. But it will close. And then it will be too late. We're praying that the Lord is, even this morning, working in hearts. If you are not trusting in Jesus today, he would open up the eyes of your heart. He would give you godly desires. You would hear the gospel call, not from me, but from the Holy Spirit this morning. And you would turn and trust in him. The second and third challenges for us this morning are for those of us who are in Christ who have entered by the narrow door and are, are striving on the narrow road. And because the door is open right now, there is a door of opportunity that is open before us. We are called as the people of God to go into all nations, into all the world. We are called to be about the work of missions. And we go because the door is still open. Even for a time, we don't know how long, but the door is open and so Julia goes and many others go. We send people of God to people who have never heard of God, the God of creation, the God who rules and reigns, the true God, because the door is still open. And so maybe this morning, you, even as you heard Julia's testimony, as you've been hearing the word of God this morning as the Holy Spirit has been at work, you're feeling maybe promptings from the Lord to, to consider taking the gospel message to places where the gospel has never been heard before, never been proclaimed before. We would love to talk to you afterwards. I know Pastor Taylor would love to talk to you. Any of the leaders, elders, staff would love to talk to you. We would love to, to pray with you about what that might look like. For all of us then, whether we send to the nations or go to the nations, we're all called to be about sharing our faith, to be about sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the work of evangelism is for all of us because the door is still open. It will not be open forever, but it's open right now. And so we share and we tell we communicate the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And this is a call for all of us that many more might enter through the narrow gate, through the narrow door, until Jesus returns. And the door is shut and the banquet begins. Would you stand with me?